Hey everybody, welcome to the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. My name is Ethan Jago and I'm your host. And this podcast is for individuals who wish to wage war against the secular culture and are willing to stand their ground on scriptural truth and Christian doctrine. Guys, I'm excited because in this episode, we're gonna be looking at certain traditions that evangelicals practice here in the US that started out as a tradition and has now sadly morphed into what many believe to be orthodox or the norm. Now, tradition is important and is something that we respect. However, when tradition usurps scriptural truth and practices, it is a slippery slope and one that we must be aware of. Now, many of you might be familiar with some of the traditionalism that we're going to be talking about. And for some of you, you may be just completely caught off guard. That's okay. I still think you there's a lot for you to learn out of this. Um, now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but this is something that I have seen very common among not just Southern Baptist churches, but primarily Southern Baptist churches and other denominations. However, before we get into this episode, we have a special guest uh, joining us today, and it's Dr. Peter Gaiman. And he's a professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in North Carolina since 2017. Now, he was one of that had a tremendous impact on my hermeneutics. And uh, we were talking about that briefly before this podcast. I'm so grateful and thankful that he came on here. And so I want to introduce Peter to everybody. And so Peter, thank you so much for coming uh, on the podcast today. Ethan, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, man. So just real quick, I mean, I kind of gave a real brief background about you, but there's so much more into that. We just kind of give our listeners like uh, a 30,000 foot overview of who Peter Gaiman is. Well, sure, I'll do my best. Uh, well, first, the first thing that I have to say is that I am, whatever I am, I am a product of God's grace, just interacting in my life and saving me at an early age and sparing me many of the sins and besetting lifestyle choices that many of my contemporaries experience. So I'm just really thankful for that. I grew up in a fantastic family with parents that loved the Lord, and that obviously shaped me in ways that you you can only imagine if you didn't experience it right and wow. so i grew up with uh two brothers uh, older and younger brother so i was a middle child so that uh taught me many lessons uh i grew up in Minna, uh, minnesota so very familiar with the cold in the winter there <laughs> and i so my life can be characterized by by two things growing up uh, a love for the church and a love for sports those were like my two favorite things growing up, I guess. And oftentimes my love for baseball and swimming uh, surpassed that of my love for Christ. And it was a constant war. But uh, sometime in high school, it, I really found a balance between that. And and it was a big, a big desire in my life to play professional baseball. I don't know if you knew that or not, but no, I, I really wanted to play professional baseball. That's, that was the one thing. Now I did also want to play because I thought it could, you know, give God glory. If I was on stage witnessing to people and things like that, <laughs> you know, I just, I, I honestly thought that that could be a great thing to do. I love playing baseball. I went out to master's university and played baseball four years there when I went to undergrad. And it was there that God really worked in my heart that I would get involved in ministry. And so uh, and it was really in a beautiful way. I got involved in some Bible studies and helped lead some of those. And I just remember thinking, you know what? I love studying the Bible. I love teaching. Mm -hmm. I love just being involved in the church. I want to I want to do that for the rest of my life. So so the Lord changed my focus. No longer was I focused on trying to get 
to be a professional baseball player, but uh, I went to seminary then. The next, uh, I guess it was the next six years, I went all the way through the MDiv, THM, PhD, uh, and just really worked hard at, at getting all of that. And uh, and along the way, too, I should say, one of the greatest manifestations of God's grace is I met my wife in California, married her. Now we have uh, three children. And so it's just, you know, the Lord's grace is really abundant in our lives and really, really thankful for all of that. Man, that's it's it's incredible. Now, how old are you, Peter? I've I, this has been a question I've always wondered. So I am thirty-four. It's insane. You're thirty. I always knew you, you weren't that old, but yet you've got <laughs> you've got your undergrad, your MDiv, your THM, your PhD, and you're a seminary professor. Like that's insane. Well, I will say that part of part of the reason that it kind of worked out that way is because I have never had a year off of school. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of, I just remember thinking, and, and that's part of, uh, part of growing up. My dad, it was the most influential man in my, in my life. And he was, he was raised on a farm. And so it was mm. that, that, um, that farm work ethic where you get up at four 30, you, you work for three hours, then you go to school all day, then you go back and work another three or four hours. And that just really sunk into me. And, and so I, I definitely am not the smartest or the most talented or any, you know, I, I, I really don't have anything with regard to that, but, but I think largely due to God's grace through the example of my father and some of the coaches that I grew up with, um, I just love to work. And so I like to put my nose to the grindstone. And so, yeah, I've never had, since I started school at six years old or whatever. I've never had a break. I, uh, I went all the way through and then I just started teaching after I graduated. So I, yeah, I've been in school for a long time, man. That's incredible. Um, now what's funny too, as I love it is like your major and your PhD and everything is biblical languages, which a lot of guys shy away from in their seminary education, but yet you focused on that. Are you just, do you just have a knack for biblical languages or languages in general? You know, I, I don't think so. And I, it, it took me a long time. I remember, I remember taking my first biblical languages classes and really feeling like I wasn't getting it. And it was just really discouraging. But I remember thinking to myself and being persuaded by some of my teachers that this is one of the greatest privileges hmm. that can be afforded to us is to learn to read the Bible in Greek or Hebrew and, and to be able to meditate on it in the language that it was actually written. In fact, I remember the first time, this is kind of silly, but first time in one of my Greek classes, uh, it was, so I, I'd gone through a whole semester of Greek and I was, you know, barely scraping by. And I remember uh, opening my Greek Bible, I think it was maybe to like Ephesians 1 and trying to make out words. And I remember being able to read uh, Paul's name in Greek. I just remember thinking that was the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I was thinking, wow, like this is <laughs> this is so revolutionary. I can read Paul's name, and that's what he would have he would have like been communicating in is this Greek. Now, of course, anybody who's reading English also understands that it's Paul's <laughs> name, but yeah. I just thought it was so cool. And so so the reason I tried to focus so much on biblical languages was because it really is the the pathway to understanding the mind of God. You know, it's it's one of those things where God chose to reveal himself in Greek and Hebrew primarily with a few sections in Aramaic. And I think that that is one of the blessings of our modern day is that we have so much access to tools and the opportunities to to acquaint ourselves with the biblical languages that it it really does help us in understanding scripture. Now I'll say that and I know not everyone has the same opportunities but you think about 
I recognized that I was I was young, I was single, and I had time. And so I just really wanted to put that focus, even though I wasn't naturally gifted, I really did think that it would it would pay the most dividends in the future. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's I'll, I'll say this. I, I had to hack my way through Hebrew. Uh, my -hmm. Hebrew is, I would say on a pre-K level, uh, but Greek just made sense to me. I, I, I definitely need to brush up on my Hebrew more. Uh, but it's just, I just love reading your stuff and your word studies and everything else. It's been so helpful for me. Um, I'm going to get into uh, our topics here because I don't want to keep us too long here. And the, the two topics I'm hoping we can get through if we have time, which I think we can, is the again we're talking about the traditionalism within the church and the first one we want to talk about is the altar call or what is known as the invitation system and then the second one we're talking about which follows in hand with the altar call or invitation is a sinner's prayer now peter what denomination did you grow up in and what has been your experience with the altar call so I grew up in northern Minnesota. You had a lot of Lutheran and Catholic churches, but I grew up in in a fundamentalist Baptist circle. And so I think if I remember correctly, the, the actual denomination was like general association of something Baptist. There's so many different uh, um, denominations within Baptist circles, but yeah. I was in one of the more general assemblies or whatever the denomination was called. And I remember it was let's see, I went to that church probably about 12 years. That's like my, all my early memories are there. And I was best friends with the the pastor's son. And, you know, I got to know the church very well. And I remember uh, altar calls being given every single Sunday. And then they would also have kind of a revival week kind <laughs> of meeting. And then they would have, uh, and so they would have sessions every weeknight as well. And then I remember altar calls being given during that time as well. Yeah. And so I, I remember, and, and I wanted to please the Lord from ever since I can remember. So I remember whenever the preacher would say, now, you know, you need to come up front um, to show your dedication to the Lord or to get saved or whatever. I just remember always feeling compelled to go up there because Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, uh, well, hey, if the preacher is saying I should go up there, that's what God, that's what godliness looks like going up front, mm. then I need to go up there. But then I, you know, there's always the the fear of man too, just thinking like, well, but other people aren't going up there or why exactly am I going up there? And I just mm. remember uh, actually having quite a few conversations with my parents about it just because I was kind of confused as to what all this was relating to the Christian life and how all that worked. Yeah. Now, did you get saved at a young age at one of these altar calls, would you say? So I I don't think, well, and this is going to betray where I'm coming from uh, <laughs> as well, is that um, I don't think that it was at an altar call that I got saved. Yeah. Uh, although I, I went forward at least twice that I can remember. There were other times that I went forward as well. But there's, and I know we're going to talk about this um, later too, but there's also a whole slew of things a lot of these go together, but I, I remember distinctly praying to get saved over, you know, a hundred times. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I know we'll talk about, uh, talk about that, but it, it was, I would say 
um, theologically and understanding, you know, what scripture teaches, I would say that the Lord saved me uh, at some point in my early life. And I have no problem saying, I don't know exactly when that was. Uh, yeah. And that's that, but that's tricky because a lot of people say, oh, I walked the aisle on December 22nd yep. or whatever. See, and, and, and Peter, you're, you're hitting exactly where I was wanting to go with this because I grew up within a, it was Southern Baptist, but it was very, I don't want to say fundamental, but quasi. And same thing with you. Anytime that the altar call was given, I felt this, not necessarily to please God, but because I wanted to make my parents happy, I would go down and I went down, I think three times. Uh, but it wasn't until I was 18 that I know that the regeneration had actually, like I was fully now in Christ. And when we're talking about these altar calls, if you're not familiar with it, those listening, it, it may have been called, Hey, we're going to draw the net this Sunday or draw the net at this revival rally, uh, or the invitation. Uh, here's an excerpt from one of the most popular, uh, altar calls given. And I wanted to be able to play the audio clip, but I'm still not at that technology yet. Um, but here, here's a, an excerpt about what it sounds like. Uh, and this is from a Billy Graham crusade. And typically what would happen is it comes at the end of the message and sometimes like there's music playing in the background to kind of invoke an emotion. And this is what an altar call sounds like if you've never heard it. Uh, and again, this is from one of Billy Graham's to ask you to come forward up there, down there. I want you to come, you come right now quickly. If you are here with friends or relatives, they will wait for you. Don't let distance keep you from Christ. It's a long way, but Christ went all the way to the cross because he loved you. Certainly you can come these few steps and give your life to him, end quote. And so in that, there's a lot of theological implications, I believe, that are being baked into that kind of altar call. But I, I think the issue with this is what I had done as a kid was, and you even said it, Peter, is that I attributed my salvation to the time in, or the day in which I walked the aisle. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. it's, I walked the aisle in this state. And a lot of times when I ask people within the church now, it's like, well, hey, when, when, when did you receive Christ? Oh, I walked the aisle when I was six. And they're kind of hanging their hat on the walking the aisle experience to account for their assurance of salvation. Yeah. And, you know, interesting fact about Billy Graham, I don't know if, um, your listeners knew this or not, but he's actually from, or at least his home base. I mean, he was everywhere, but his home base was here in North Carolina. And they actually have the Billy Graham Center here in Western North Carolina near Asheville. And so he has uh, incredible influence in this area. And, yeah. uh, and he really, I mean, his, his influence extends throughout, throughout the South, uh, especially in, in uh, Christianity. But this is, this is something that you see not just uh, in these big tent meeting revivals, which he would he would speak at, but but in the local church as well. Yeah. And I think it, exactly what you described is is one of the dangers is I remember hearing from the pulpit on you know the Sunday nights or Sunday mornings, whenever these altar calls would be taking place. The pastor would say, you you walk down here, we'll meet you at the front, we'll pray with you, and then you'll have a date in your Bible where you can always look back at that and have assurance that you you have a relationship with Jesus. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I just, I don't see that in scripture, to be honest. That's, uh, no. that's kind of foreign. Well, and, you know, even too, serving in VBSs and stuff within churches I've served at, then they give this big altar call and the kids just pour down. 
anytime I meet with the kids and I ask them, well, Hey, why did you come down? Like what made you respond? Some of them would say, Oh, I don't really know. Or my friends came down or it's because he asked me to. And the danger with that, especially within kids is now we're saying, okay, I'm gonna lead you through this. All right. Now I'm gonna take your information. Hey, congratulations. Now you're a Christian is it, it creates false converts. And, and I can say that because I was a false convert. I, I assumed I was a Christian because I had done exactly what we just described. Now, here's the thing. Like, I want to take on the opposite side is people will say, and it was actually in his altar call statement, there is a, a vague reference to a biblical passage that I want us to unpack because this would be, I guess you could say the biblical argumentation or their support uh, for the altar call because if you look at Jesus's ministry, I always like to point back to this is like, we need to be modeling out of what we see in scripture. We don't ever see Jesus give an altar call. You know, when he fed the 5,000, he didn't say, okay, now everyone come forward to me and you'll receive salvation. Or the woman at the well, he didn't say, okay, now, you know, let, let's, let me come, come towards me and I will, you know, grant you salvation through a prayer is that the verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. And Peter, I want to ask you to kind of unpack this for us theologically here is in Matthew 10, 32, it says this, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. And typically you'll hear this used as an altar call that by you coming down the aisle, you're confessing me before men. But if you can't even take that step of faith, and that's usually how I hear it too, take that first step of faith and come down here. Because if you can't even acknowledge Jesus before everyone in this church, then why would Jesus acknowledge you? Um, can you give us a quick, a quick uh, explanation of that? Yeah. And, and I think it, this does, I will, I will admit and say this, this is appealing to people because it makes sense to them that this is something that they have to do to show that they're serious about, you know, a relationship with Jesus. And so it feels good on a human level and emotional level to do something, to, to make yourself do something that you view or other people view as a commitment to Christ. So that's that's one of the appeals here. Now, the question is, is that what Matthew 10, 32 is talking about? And I think it's it's helpful to, to know, even as you're reading that, you know, and this is basic grammar level, but but important when you when you're looking at the first phrase there, therefore, it shows that it's connected to something that came prior. And so Matthew 10, 32, and, and this is good practice in general, just hermeneutically, is that you don't want to just read verses in isolation, but you want to see them in context. And if you look at the previous verses, you know, like, for example, this whole section is basically 26 through 33. Uh, you, you see Jesus telling his disciples, have no fear of them those who are who are pressing them uh, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And he goes on and says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who cannot just or fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, this is the context in which this is is being mentioned. And so it, it's talking about in the in the area of persecution. This hmm. is this is a test of a true believer. Is that those who acknowledge Christ, who confess Him, and of course that language of confession of Jesus as Lord. You know, even even in Matthew, the book of Matthew itself has a has a rich, deep theology of 
those who who walk the narrow way, uh, entrusting themselves to Christ alone. And so Matthew 5 through 7 is where we see the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of those themes come out there. And even there in, in Matthew 7, which is also in, in subject, is Jesus's own warning that there will be many in that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to them, depart, I never knew you. So Jesus has already defined the fact that there will be individuals who who are among the they're, they're pseudo Christians, as it were, they, they've associated with them and and they're going to depart. And one of the key themes that Jesus continues to bring out is that when persecution comes, then you will see who is a genuine believer and who is not. And and one of the things that we've even seen today, I think, with some of the uh, with some of the Christianity losing its favorability in the in the larger public is that people are now they start to see oh it's it's actually a little more costly to follow Christ or be associated with him so I'm not going to be associated with him anymore and so they refuse to uh, acknowledge their relationship and dependence on Christ and obedience to him and that that context of persecution is demonstrating who they really are and so Jesus is saying here essentially listen in the context of persecution if if you are not if you if you're not steadfast if you don't confess me that's evidence of a relationship that is not existing and therefore i will also deny you before my father in that in the, and that makes sense to us because it's through the persecution peter tells us in first peter 1 that that it's through the testing and the trial that reveals uh, the genuine nature of faith which is more precious than gold he says and so that's that's really what's being talked about here but it's 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 not about somebody who's walking an aisle and signing a card or making some sort of verbal confession. In fact, I would say um, this is probably more than you wanted, but I would say one more thing that's that's important here is contextually the idea of an altar call or going forward would have no like if you if you ask the Apostle Peter, or the Apostle uh, you know, John or something like that. And you said, Hey, when did you walk the aisle or when did you go forward at the temple? You know, they'd yeah. be like, what are you talking about? Like, we did not do that. But, yeah. but what they, what they would have recognized as the moment of affiliation with Christ is when they were baptized. That's, and that's something that I think is really missing. I, and I don't know about, um, when you were growing up, what, how this coexisted, but I know where I was growing up, Baptism was often downplayed almost to the, you know, well, it's 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 important because it's obedience, but it's really not it's really not necessary. What's most important is walking the aisle or yeah. coming forward because then you're saved. But mm. in the early church, and this is important to me because I've been doing a lot of research recently on this issue of baptism, in the early church, being baptized and being saved were were essentially viewed as the same process is that mm. there was nobody who was saved who was not baptized. And of course, being baptized is the public declaration of I am I am trusting and confessing in Jesus as my Lord. I'm identifying with him through union. And that was, even today in other countries, uh, Muslims, for example, can can talk to Christians. They can even read the Bible and whatever. That's not a problem. But if you, if you get baptized... That is when the when the problems really start. The persecution comes because that is the sign that you are truly um, following Christ and affiliated with the church. And so it's it's interesting because when I read this, you know, a lot of people might say, "Well, this is what we're doing at walking the aisle, going down to the altar." 
But I would say, you know, this actually happens so much more in the context of understanding baptism in the acknowledgement mm. of I am completely identified with Christ at this point through yes. baptism. And so that's that's how I would take that. Man, that's solid. Yeah, no, that's that's really good because you touch on several different themes that is we're, we're going to be moving into. And one thing that you're, you're describing is um, it's not an it's not that we are in. And this is what I think ends up happening is it, it's taking, I guess you could say, the order of salvation and placing me as not just the initiator of it, but like almost the one controlling the process. I think that is spirit led, spirit given. Because now it's, well, I'm taking that first step. I'm the one walking. No, you never took the first step. The only reason why you take any kind of a spiritual or even physical step is because you've been empowered by the sovereign grace of Christ through the prompting of the Holy Spirit to do that, to even respond in such a manner. Exactly. And I always like to make the distinction, too. You can have a profession of Christ, but it's not a confession. Uh, there's a large difference um, between profession and confession. Um, you can go, walk the aisle and get baptized and you're professing Christ, but there's never been a confession that has been made. Sure. All throughout the New Testament is repent and believe, repent and believe. Like that's it. It's not repent, believe, and then walk the aisle. It's repent, believe. And then what naturally follows that is baptism. So, man, I thought you, I thought you nailed that. And, you know, with this too, um, we were going to go into, but you kind of covered what I was going to go next is when people walk the aisle or when that emotional experience begins to happen where the, the music is strumming in the background and just as I am is on the 17th stanza is uh, you know, what's comes to mind is it is a, it almost invoking an emotional reaction of, well, man, I, I feel really brokenhearted and I, I I'm very weary, you know, physically and everything else, but there's no actual guilt over the sin. Uh, it, it's just, I need to walk down just so I can feel better about myself. And it reminded me of the parable of the sower and the seeds and Mark chapter different types of seeds on the soil that they fell on and what happens with that, whether it's, it dies immediately or it blossoms very quickly and then it's choked out or it, it actually is on good soil. Um, but moving on with it, I want us to talk now into the historical usage of the altar call. So we've unpacked Matthew 10's context for altar call, which is not really, it's not supporting an altar call at all. It, not at all. But the altar call, the term really wasn't used until the 20th century. And so what's interesting about this, and I'm sure too, I've, I've been listening to your podcast, Peter, about the baptism historical understanding. I've actually been reading into this as well. And I love Calvin's stance on uh, where he writes about women shouldn't be baptizing, but really only pastors need to be the ones baptizing. Um, it, you don't see the term altar call used really anywhere in Christian history until the 20th century. You know, it, it's, it's, it's mind blowing that it's just the 20th century is when this first comes out and it appeared the first time it appeared was in 1908 at a commencement exercises at Pacific. This came out in pastor CB Harrison's pioneer days of the holiness movement in Southwest in 19. Speaks of the altar call as if it had been routine. And so this is how Harrison describes this. It's a song altar call as usual. The altar call delayed the beginning of preaching, Harrison wrote, because there were 25 praying at the altar at the top of their voices to be sanctified. Getting into the, I guess you could say even the practices and ordinances of the church as being distracting is what he's saying. 
Um, and the altar call was invented by a Presbyterian evangelist is Charles Finney, because this is when uh, the revival movement, the church started becoming very programmatic uh, in its approach to invoke altar calls and to evoke, invoke revivals. This quote from Charles Finney, and then I want you me to kind of unpack this. So this is what Finney says, quote, just so now in the case of the sinner, you understand the proposition, you know, the conditions of salvation, you understand the contract into which you are to enter with God and Savior, your covenant to give your all to God, to lay yourself upon his altar. Will you consent to this at once? Will you go for full and everlasting consecration with all your heart? End quote. Now, I want to unpack that because will you consent to this at once? I think what I see in this, Peter, and correct me if you see something different with this, is that we can somehow limit the imputation of righteousness at happening immediately. It's as if it's like this long, gradual thing upon uh, acknowledgement of Christ as your Savior. Now, like you said, too, um, I can't, I know roughly when I recognized that I needed God as my Savior, but the regeneration took long before since then. And that's why it's so hard to pick that time, date, place, location to the exact second. It's the softening of your soul and preparing you because our natural disposition is in rebellion to God, not to be neutral towards God. And so does this happen at once? Is it immediately or is this a, a gradual process? You know? Right. Yeah. I would actually say too, um, I appreciate you unpacking a lot of that stuff because I think it's helpful to to kind of understand the back the backdrop to this is that even though the altar call, you know, was was so labeled in the 20th century, the theology behind it you know, extended uh, into the previous centuries. And I think one of the things that is really important about Finney is he basically was as anti uh, God's sovereignty and salvation as you can get. Uh, and so a lot of, in fact, one of the things I was recently studying kind of independent of this, but it relates is, and I don't know if maybe your, your listeners have heard of this before, but it's called Keswick theology and it's spelled K-E-S-W-I-C-K, but it's pronounced Keswick theology. And one of the things that that links here with our discussion, and you can see it even showing up in, in Finney's quote here and, and understanding you know, human responsibility with that, is that there's this idea in, in Keswick theology and, and the, what's known as the holiness movement, it ends up becoming into Pentecostalism as well, is that uh, mankind basically has the volition or the ability in and of themselves to, to achieve not just salvation, but then a, a higher level of holy living. So, so part of this, and this, this is actually, I'm not sure it's found in every single situation where there's an altar call, but, but in the circles that I grew up in, this was very present where you would have, uh, the, the phraseology saying, you know, if, if you need to get saved, um, come down here, or maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ or something like that. And that that language of rededication to Christ and achieving this this new phase of life often assumes behind it this this idea that uh, that that there is a difference in Christians between uh, carnality, Christians who are living in just a natural carnal state and Christians who are living with the with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And so oftentimes the altar call is used that that way. And so obviously right now we've been primarily talking about 
the idea of calling sinners to salvation by by coming forward and and having that relationship with Christ in that way. But the altar call ends up being used deeper uh, with regard to this. And I think that even in some of these phrases that Finney's using, uh, the the language that he's using, you understand the contract or you covenant to give your. I mean, these are. Uh, statements that place the full volitional capability and capacity on the human being. And I don't think Paul would be okay with that. I think Paul uses language, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, this is, you you don't have the ability to respond unless God opens your eyes and the Lord calls you. And so that's, that's just personally, that's my biggest problem. Now, again, I appreciate how you said this and I, I agree is that I don't think altar calls are inherently sinful, but I think that they are unhelpful in many, many cases, and they can be sinful if you are deceiving people or misleading them. And in some cases, um, perhaps even leaving people worse off if they think, oh, I'm saved since I forced myself to walk down to the front of the church or something. Well, and now you said to, you said something in here that it's not in the notes, but I'm going to bring it up here. Two things. One, is this concept and idea of rededication. So I, I hear this all the time, like I, come forward if you want to rededicate your life to Christ or come forward if you need to have a rededication of baptism. So Peter, what is that implying when we use terms like rededicate your life to the Lord? Well, I think the biggest thing that's that's foundational to, to that kind of language and understanding is the assumption that you are saved even if you are living in sin. And that's, well, and this is a tricky topic in general, but but I think it's important. We, we really got to talk about this as well, is that I think in the biblical picture, uh, the evidence of a saved life is somebody who's living in accordance with scripture. As Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples or that you love me, that you keep my commandments. Okay, so and first John itself, uh, John wrote the entire little epistle there, that five chapters, first John, that you may know that you have eternal life. And the tests of that eternal life are obedience to Christ. No man who makes a practice of sinning uh, has has the son. That's first uh, John three, a rough paraphrase there. And so when you think about the tests of Scripture as to what does it look like? for a true believer. Well, a true believer doesn't live in consistent, unrepentant sin. But in, in a lot of this theology of man-centered theology, what you'll find is that there's an assumption, well, if you prayed a prayer or if you walked the aisle and you went through those steps, then you're saved. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live. You're saved. But there will come a time uh, possibly where, okay, it's obviously not right that you're living in adultery, or it's obviously not right that you're um, living as a habitual cheater or a liar. So maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ. Now you're already saved. doesn't matter how you're living, but you were saved because of something you did when you're six or seven or eight. Uh, and and that I think is, is very wrong and errant uh, because scripture is all about, uh, you know, even to use Jesus's phrase to the Pharisees in Matthew seven, he says, by your fruits, or by their fruits, you shall know them. In other words, there's a direct correlation between who we are and how we act. And that's just basic common sense, but it's also very, very biblical. And so the, the problem with this then is that, well, okay, you're saved, but you're obviously 
you're you're in sin now. So let's rededicate your life to Christ. Let's let's get this back on on track. You know that your things aren't what they should be, and so let's let's try to rededicate our life. That's a big part of this. Now I say all that, and I will just I do just want to clarify that I'm not saying believers don't struggle with sin or that they can't struggle with sin because that is very evident and biblical as well. But the but the key difference here is unrepentant sin is that the the believer is marked by constant struggle yes but but also constant repentance and also a progressive sanctification over time but then this is also part of the keswick theology bleeding in here is because in some of these churches what you have is the assumption that okay these people are saved because of what they did at some point but then they're looking for the second experience of christianity where when they rededicate their life to christ or they advance to the higher plane of theology then they'll get this filling of the holy spirit this special filling and then they'll actually be able to walk in a holy righteous way but again i just don't see that in scripture i don't think scripture makes any difference uh between a believer who has been saved for one week versus who has been saved for 20 years they they have the same spirit and the same capacity to live in holiness and of course sanctification is where that works out differently and you grow and you mature of course but what they're talking about is something different usually and not i do want to clarify not every uh church would would say say it in these same um phrases but but that's the potential of what's going on in in some churches now some churches might just want to encourage you to get your life back on track but they're still assuming incorrectly that you're saved if you if you are living like an unbeliever you're probably an unbeliever that's what scripture talks about yeah and i i think you you hit it really well too is i don't think all churches would imply that a regenerate believer can fall away because with that is the basically stating that you could lose your salvation which dedication it makes it seem as though, and you said it too, I forget who termed or coined the term carnal Christian, um, that you could be a carnal Christian. Um, that I don't see that in scripture. It's you're in Christ or you're out of Christ. But when you're using terms like rededication, I think the implication is, or could be, at least from a perceptive standpoint, is that you have fallen away and now you've got to re rebring yourself back into proper alignment with Christ. And I think you summed that up perfectly. Now, the second follow-on question with this, if and you said this too, and I grew up in churches like this, should the church be giving an altar call every Sunday? And should the message be so heavily evangelistic to the lost in the church context? Now, I know this could be gray here, but I, I think scripturally we see what was the what is the purpose and point of church? It's not for a gathering of non-believers, it's for the gathering of believers. So exactly. if I'm constantly evangelizing to my congregation, like if I stand up on the pulpit at Five Bridges every single Sunday and preach to them as if they're all unsaved, what am I doing to grow those who are saved? And I think you're you're really limiting um, the spiritual growth, not that they, this should be the primary means of their spiritual growth, but still, I mean, if you're coming together corporately on a Sunday to hear the word of God exposited so that you can grow and you're hearing the teachings, uh, you, you should be getting fed. Amen. We see, we see that even in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is saying, 
you guys should be teachers by now, but you're not. So I'm having to use baby talk with you because you're still not where you need to be. And would you say, Peter, that when a church is just so heavily, and I'm not saying you can't be evangelistic in your preaching because the gospel is on, it's all throughout scripture. I, I don't see how you, you can't hear Christ preached in sermons, especially if you're expositing it. But would you say though, that potentially the spiritual growth of a congregation would be limited if the pastor is specifically preaching to lost people on a Sunday morning? Well, I mean, you hit That's you a loaded hit, question. <laughs> well, you hit a chord with me because this is something I'm I'm very passionate about because I always tell people, and you know, I'm sorry if I'm saying this too strongly, but I always say that church is not for unbelievers. Church yeah. is for believers. Yep. And unbelievers are welcome, but they shouldn't feel welcome, if that makes sense. hundred percent. A lot of people, a lot of people don't like that, but I always go back to Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. It says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's, that's the purpose statement of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then in verse 14, it continues that so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So the whole point and purpose of these teachers is to actually mature those who are in the church. And yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I think that it's actually a huge disservice, although I would probably say it uh, because I, I, I think what ends up happening is that if you are preaching, if you are, if you are being evangelistic to the extent that, uh, you, you know, you're, you're just, you're not focused on the actual training up and building up of those who are in the congregation. I think you're actually not following the biblical example anyway, because Paul himself would go to places. He would proclaim the gospel. He would, he would see people saved and then he would stay there and teach them and train them. And so I think there's something wrong if we forget that the proclam or Jesus's mandate to the church isn't uh, just proclaim the gospel, but it's disciple you know, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And so I think that that's uh, to make learners, to, to help uh, everyone grow. Even 2 Timothy 2, Paul talks about how we we take what we know, pass it down to faithful men who will then teach others also. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, but to be fair, I, I do appreciate that people want to win the souls of the lost, right? But but let's not do it our way. Let's train people in the church. And then when people are in the church, they go out. They are all you know, it's better to have a hundred evangelists than one evangelist. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, and I've had someone say to me, Ethan, I, I brought my friend to church and I was really hoping you would give the altar call so that they could walk down the aisle and accept Christ. And I, I said, I don't know why you think that you need me to bring someone to Christ. I'm, I'm not the initiator of salvation with this. And if you're thinking that by me not giving an altar call, I have some now how limited the spirits work in an individual because if grace is irresistible and it, you just cannot run from it, I can't prevent anyone from coming to know Christ uh, if I'm clearly bringing the, God's word to bear and the truth therein. And so if someone is feeling so compelled that in a message or a sermon or something that any preacher preaches that there has to be a time for this individual to respond. If, if they have received Christ, they will want to go to that church eldership and say, Hey, 
I, I have believed, I have repented. I am now a believer. What do I need to do next? Um, that that's just my, that's my two cents on that. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think we're definitely in line on that. Yeah. And because what, what happens though, is I have seen the altar end up becoming like people come down to the altar for prayer, for everything else, which I don't see anything wrong with that. But the way I've seen it used now is that these individuals are coming forward almost as like a elitist status now, like, oh, this, that person went down to the Lord, either one or two things I think of in my mind, either I wonder what that person did and they're confessing their sin as if you need to go to the altar to confess your sin, or this person's going to the, down the aisle because they're holier than everybody else in here because they go down the aisle. Right. Yeah. There's a huge danger of, of making it uh, on a human level, some sort of comparative contest. I think I, I, one of the things that I've appreciated is I've been to churches where they say, Hey, you know what? We don't give an altar call, but if you need help in any way that we have a side office over here, you're welcome to stop by in between services yeah, or after great. service. I think that's great. You know, nobody knows who's going over there or who's stopping by, but but they're available for help should somebody need need because you would hope that the preaching of God's word would make somebody want to change something in their lives and maybe they don't know how. And so then, you know, yeah, let's have some some people available. But going back to what we've been talking about, many of the problems with these altar calls is that you have uh, oftentimes in especially the 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 revivalist kind of settings, you have people who who aren't really trained at all in biblical theology or, or sound doctrine. And they're just there to try to coach somebody through a prayer and sign a card. And yeah. now they're a stat. It will, and you just hit on exactly where we're going next is on these quote unquote revivals um, in which people are like, we need to have a revival. We need to have a revival. And anytime you see in scripture revival happening, it wasn't something concocted by man where, Hey, we're going to schedule a revival on October the 15th uh, from six to eight down at the civic center. And, you know, we're, we're going to have a revival. The spirit's going to come I, again. It's that is also implying now that the, we're not all indwelt by the spirit and that the spirit is not already working is something that we have to initiate. And Finney even here's a quote from Finney regarding this. He says this religion is the work of man. It is something for man to do. It consists in obeying God with and from the heart. It is man's duty end quote. And then another one, he says, Quote, that unless the religious feelings are awakened and kept excited, counter-worldly feeling and excitement will prevail and men will not obey God. End mm. quote. So with that quote there, he's implying that we can invoke the excitement for men to respond to accept Christ. So it's putting the power, in my opinion, it's putting the power in the hands of man. And now it's something that we have done as opposed to something that God has done, putting us in the driver's seat and having God sit in the back seat. Hmm. Yeah, I remember actually being at a conference one time when I was in college and hearing a fellow college student say, you know, I, I feel so excited and passionate to follow God right now, but I know in a couple of weeks I won't feel this anymore. So I just, you know, I need to find the next conference so that I can get that get that feeling again. I just remember thinking, wow, if, if you're reliant on emotions to to follow and obey Christ, you're you're bound for failure. I mean, yeah. there's just there's nothing in this life that can keep us pumped up enough to obey Christ, except for the real genuine work of God in our hearts, where we recognize this is what I have to do. Yeah. And the way I've also heard this used too is 
Uh, I've heard this used to describe evangelists, man. Th- th- this is how I've heard it is this guy who's coming, who's going to speak. This guy wins the souls. He, he, he draws the net. We've been casting the net all year hmm. and we're, we're going to harvest the souls this weekend uh, at this revival ceremony. And then what ends up happening is you get these people walking the aisle, uh, getting them to fill out those cards and everything else. And then it gets put out on social media and everything else of like, celebrate with us. We had 700 people uh, commit their lives to Christ, 15 rededications and 34 rebaptisms. And they tout these numbers. And Spurgeon says this that I, I think is just beautiful. Uh, quote, he says this, do not be in a hurry to count these supposed converts. Do not take them into the church too soon. Do not be too proud of their enthusiasm if it is not accompanied with some degree of softening and tenderness to show that the Holy Spirit has really been at work within them, end quote. Uh, I, I think that's key because we can't be too quick to say, yeah, 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 you're a believer. Uh, here's your card. Let me sign your Bible with your date. Uh, congratulations. Now you're a Christian. I think we've made it, uh, as MacArthur would say, it's the easy believism. Mm-hmm. You walk this aisle, you do this, bang, you're in the club. And I just think that's dangerous. Uh, I, I think we we have to be very cautious with that to not give a false, especially from a pastor's standpoint, to, to not give some kind of false assurance of salvation that I am now affirming your salvation because I'm saying you walk the aisle, therefore you're a Christian. It's that pragmatic approach, you know? Well, and I would say too, uh, from a pastoral church leadership perspective, that's a very dangerous, uh, that's a very dangerous thing. If, if you're going around giving people assurance of salvation, that's not up to you to do that. Uh, yeah. And the spirit is the one who assures and testifies in our hearts, John tells us. And so we're not, we're not there to tell somebody, I don't think, I mean, I can't even imagine a scenario where I would feel comfortable saying, don't worry about it. You're for sure saved. I don't think anywhere in scripture does it say we, we should be encouraging people on those, in those uh, areas. I think we need to speak the truth and say, this is, this is what believers do. And so therefore you do this. And if you don't do this, then yeah, you should question whether or not you are actually a believer. Yeah. And, you know, I hear this and I had this growing up too, is going to my pastors and even my dad saying, dad, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I'm not sure if I'm a believer. And then, you know, pastors, youth pastors, oh, no, no, no. The fact that you're asking that tells me that you are. Well, no, that that does not imply that. I understand what they're saying, uh, because when you're so baked in growing up within the church, there's this familiarity with Christ that you think you're a part um, but I mean, this is what is written in the new Testament. They went out from us, but they were not a part of us or they were not among us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you, you know, and I hate when I hear quote unquote evangelicals or quote unquote Christians are walking away from the faith. They were never Christians to begin with. Uh, so let's get that clear, but that skews demographics and statistics and everything else. And it makes people wonder, huh, man, look at all these prominent Christians walking away from the faith. No, they, they, they're not walking away from the faith. They were never a part of the faith to walk away from. Exactly. They, they were just very familiar with it. And now what happens, and this is moving us into our second point, is they walk the aisle, and then this is typically what happens, is they walk the aisle, there's an encourager, or there's a quote-unquote counselor or someone else, and they lead them in the sinner's prayer. And so that's the next thing, is that they come down the aisle, uh, and because it, it's not just one thing, it's two things. You walk the aisle and then you say the prayer. And so my question is, is, well, hold up. Is the person saved when they walk the aisle or when they say the prayer? 
Well, what if the person walks the aisle, starts walking the aisle, but even say the prayer? You know, and, and that's that's always my question is like, come down here and we'll lead you in the sinner's prayer. Come down here and we'll lead you to receive salvation as if it's a, an act that man can somehow do. I just think that that's an issue. And so I want to look at real briefly the history of the sinner's prayer, because again, Peter, you're you're one of the my favorite biblical scholars. Is there anything in scripture uh, in which we see any of the apostles or even Jesus leading someone through the sinner's prayer? You know, Ethan, one of the things you mentioned, um, which I appreciate, you mentioned, you know, kind of struggling with assurance of salvation and and seeing people go through that. And I'll, I'll admit that I actually struggled with that quite a bit as well. And one of the reasons why I struggled with that is because I wasn't sure whether or not I had meant the sinner's prayer when I when I would ask Lord to save me. I would try to mean it as as much as I could when I would pray it. And then I would think to myself, but what if I didn't mean it the way that I should have? What if I didn't mean it as much? And and I I'm not sure that this was, you know, what was being preached. But for whatever reason, I, I was under the assumption that all I had to do was pray this prayer and mean it. And then God would save me. Um, and so I just remember thinking, but but did I mean that? But it was it was actually really it was really freeing when I actually started to read scripture and actually study that. And, and the greatest assurance that I had in, in my salvation was that it actually didn't matter what I said in, in a prayer. In fact, yeah. nowhere in the Bible did it say that I needed to pray to be saved. And I just remember when I thought of that, I was thinking, wow. So the thing which was giving me so much angst and anxiety about whether or not I was an actual Christian when I was younger. That's not even a biblical issue. And I just remember once I learned that and really internalized that. And when I realized that, that it's not, it's not a magical formula or words that you say yeah. that, that makes you a Christian, but it's, it's an embracing a belief, which, which isn't just assenting to something that's true in your mind, but acknowledging something that's true and your life conforms to that reality. That's why repentance and faith go hand in hand, because if you truly believe something, your life changes. And so that's that's why you can call people to repent and it's not adding works to salvation. You, but you say uh, faith is intrinsic with it is the is the call to repentance and a change of life. And once I realized that and uh, and realized that it wasn't about some magical formulas, um, you know, praying the, the, the sinner's prayer or, you know, saying, saying the right words there, there was, you know, my life became a lot more peaceful. We'll just say that. Yeah. Well, same, same thing here is I said that prayer, I don't know how many times thinking, okay, maybe I didn't say it the right way, or I didn't say it as heartfelt as enough as I should have prior. So I'm going to say it one more time, just in case I didn't walk the aisle, but I said it anyway in the church. Cause it'd be like this, every head bowed and every eye closed say this prayer yeah. after me. And then they would lead you in it. And I remember repeating that in my mind or repeating it, you know, softly thinking, okay, if it didn't work, then maybe it'll work now. Uh, yeah. and, and again, it, it puts this false uh, dilemma that should never have been there. And I, I love how CS Lewis uses the, the term. It's a great cataract of nonsense. And he uses this to describe how people use a modern idea to construe biblical theology. And that's what I think, the sinner's prayer can do because if you want to follow the logic of the sinner's prayer, and I, I say this all the time in jest, 
is if you think that that prayer saves people, then why would you not print it out and go around and make everybody that you come in contact, hey, just say this prayer, just say it. You don't have to believe it, just say the prayer. Mm-hmm. Is that if you say this prayer, now that person is a, is a saint, is a participant of the sacrifice of Christ. And I wouldn't say that they would think that, but I think logically that would be where it would land you or where the road would end, you know? Right, or consistency, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people people say this too. Uh, using the verse Revelation 3.20, they use this verse, again, out of context here, is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine him, uh, dine with him, excuse me, and he with me. And so that's what they're saying is that you say that sinner's prayer because it's like, it, I always remember as a kid thinking and hearing this, even when I was an unregenerate, I'm like, man, is, is, am I that powerful that Jesus is standing there pounding on the door? Like, Ethan, please let me in. Now I, I need to save you. You got to let me in. And, you know, I love memes. I don't know if you like memes, but there's this hilarious meme I, I always send to my buddies and it's uh, a, the artist rendition. I don't know who the artist is, but it's Paul on the road to Damascus. And it's Jesus coming down saying, Saul, Saul, ask me into your heart. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious to me. But the sad thing is, is that verse is used out of context. Because if you look at what you were already saying, when we look at verses in isolation, um, we can commit a very poor exegetical fallacy here, or even just a hermeneutical fallacy, is that that context of that verse is not Jesus standing there pounding on the door saying, man, I hope that this is, you know, something that you will do. It's he's addressing, John's addressing the church in Laodicea uh, about people who are lukewarm or pretty much useless is really the proper terminology for that. That that passage has been misused um, since the mid 1700s as a basis of evangelizing to non-Christians. And John Webb in the 1700s says this regarding, uh, regarding the sinner's prayer in that verse specifically, quote, Here's a promise of union to Christ in these words. I will come into him. If any sinner will but hear my voice and open the door and receive me by faith, I will come into his soul and unite him to me and make him a living member of that, my mystical body, of which I am the head, end quote. And so with that there, Peter, are we not getting the order of salvation as if we are the initiators? We have taken the first step. Yeah, I think, uh, and again, the popularization of these techniques and these ideologies really come from more Arminian-influenced uh, individuals who, you know, are are elevating the the ability of mankind. In some cases, like in the in the case of Charles Finney specifically, he would actually go so far as to deny even the idea of what what theologians refer to as total depravity meaning that mankind is is neutral in in his natural state there's he's not naturally predisposed to seek evil but if we look at scripture and i think one of the clearest doctrines is the you know i actually just talked about this um with somebody earlier uh in the last few weeks is is even looking at the the flood narrative you see god god recognizing that the intention of man's heart is only evil continually yeah yeah and i think that's pretty basic and clear in both old and new testament but but when you have these this foundation of the neutrality or even in some cases the goodness of man then it's well you can do this you have the ability but i, I just don't think that's the biblical picture no and it, it dances on 
not dances. It's either semi-Pelagian or it's just full-blown Pelagianism. So are, and I think that asks the question of, well, in original sin, you know, did it make man in a neutral standpoint? Are they completely dead or are they partially dead, but still have a willingness or a, some inherent goodness intrinsic to them in their worth. And I, I just don't know how you can get around all of the scriptural passages. They are dead in their trespasses in their sins. So how do dead people go from dead to life? Now, uh, in a great way, I like to explain this is I was a part of a dive search and rescue team uh, in which we would be dispatched to go and dive and look for bodies uh, in, in case there was a potential of uh, some, a body got dumped or something. And I remember it, it, it was a horrific, vivid, uh, I had nightmares about it, but it was up in uh, Washington state and the sheriff's department dispatched a call saying, Hey, we need some divers to go out here. And I remember I, I was nervous to go in there because I didn't want to come face to face with a dead body in the water. And if you've ever seen a dead body that's been in the water, it's disgusting. It's awful. Mm. And so I dove, I had my dry suit on and I remember as I'm diving, you know, visibility was maybe a couple feet in front of me. There was like this, you know, there was some sea soot in the, it was a fresh body of water. There was some like, it's not seagrass, but it's like seagrass. And I remember this black stuff in front of my face and I'm like, man, what is this? And, I, and I'm swatting it away and I start to pull it and it was the, the woman's hair that uh. was just floating. And as I pulled it and I looked, she was clearly dead. And it freaked me out. But then I remember thinking, well, she's dead. She can't do anything. Dead is dead. Uh, it, it's just an inanimate corpse here. And so that gave me the, the, the sadly, you know, analogy of what Paul's describing here is that when you're dead and your trespasses in your sins, you're useless. I mean, you're hmm. a useless body. And then we are made alive in Christ. So Christ is the initiator. Christ pumps life back into your veins. Christ is literally squeezing your heart, pumping that going back again. Then we're responding to Christ being the initiator, not ourselves. Because if we are dead and the biblical languages say that we are in fact dead, then I don't know how else you can get around the word dead, you know? Right. I, I just don't, I don't see any other way around it. And so by me saying a prayer, that's not a magical potion that I'm drinking now in my words that have in, you know, activated the spirit inside me. Um, right. I know that's a messed up analogy, but like, that's how I, I try to describe it to people is that it's not that you're a corpse at the bottom. Uh, like I've heard so many other people say, and then, you know, Jesus reaches out his hand and then you respond and you grab Jesus's hand and then he saves you. It's no, you're dead at the very bottom of the lake. Like how I came across and then I had to bring this woman up and I didn't bring her back to life, obviously, but like Christ brings us up and pumps life into our lungs. And now we are saved. Yeah. The way I like to, I, I appreciate the analogy. Um, and I think that that's, that's very fitting. Uh, the way I like to describe it is, you know, the, it, it's not wrong to pray. I, I just think what, what we pray is, is we're not, we're not saying, okay, Lord, I'm ready for you to save me. That's not, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying, okay, I give you permission to do it. Um, <laughs> we're, I think what we're doing is we're, we're recognizing and responding to the work that God is doing in our hearts. And that's, that's totally appropriate and fine to do. So in, in one sense, you know, I, I'm not, I, I definitely don't 
uh, support or appreciate the idea of the sinner's prayer. If you say these words, you're, you're saved forever or whatever. But I do also want to acknowledge that prayer is just the natural pouring out of your heart to God. And so if the spirit is moving in, in someone's heart, they are going to be prompted to pray. And it's just unfortunate if they are then discipled incorrectly into what they're actually doing, Yeah, which sometimes happens. But then, Lord willing, they grow and mature over time. And, and I think we see that. Yeah. And I think really, too, where it comes down to, I mean, how old are your kids, Peter? Uh, five, three and one. OK, so uh, I don't know if your kids are at the age yet where they've uh, where they've accepted Christ or anything else. But I remember my two oldest, my son's 11 and my middle daughter's nine. And, you know, we, we pray constantly for their salvation. We share the gospel with them all the time. I mean, they're constantly hearing it. And when they came, when my son came to me and he said, dad, I, I, I need to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. You know, the, the kids don't know all the theological terms. I said, okay, buddy, well, what do you think you need to do? And he says, well, don't I need to say a prayer? I was like, well, if you need to, if you want to say a prayer, let's go ahead and pray. But like this prayer, let me quickly caveat, Caden, this prayer is not going to save you. And then I remember him saying, well, what should I say? And then like my natural inclination is to try and lead him through the sinner's prayer. But then like what you had said earlier is your natural inclination should be to pray now that you are renewed and you are alive, not renewed, but you are now alive in Christ. I said, buddy, all I want you to do is say to God, whatever it is that is on your heart. And you just tell him what it is that has happened. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along the lines of like, I believe in you, Jesus. I love you. I trust in you. And I want to obey you. And mm -hmm. then it, when he got done, he looked at me. He's like, was that it, dad? I was like, buddy. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> that's isn't what saved you kiddo. But yeah, if, if you feel so compelled because we didn't, you know, manipulate anything, my wife and I weren't sitting there like evangelizing to the kids every single night, we would pray with them every night. We would, you know, obviously talk to them about the things of the Lord and lead them in, uh, in accordance with scripture. But at that point, I don't want my son to hang his hat. Well, my dad heard me say this prayer, therefore I am a Christian. It's something that he did in response to what he felt compelled to do from the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we, especially when it comes to children, we need to be very cautious uh, with that um, because otherwise we could potentially deceive even our own kids, which I would, oh man, I, that's just something I would never want to dabble into. You know. Oh, yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's definitely on my wife and I's hearts and mind as we as we're trying to disciple our kids and, and uh, teach them uh, the things of Scripture. And, and I, I think that that's that is the way to go about it. You know, you're, you're not trying to give them some sort of magical phrase, but you're just trying to teach them, you know, what faith looks like. Yeah, and I think that's that's good. Yeah. And then what we did from then on is I said, well, what do you think needs to happen next, buddy? And he's like, well, I'm not sure. I was like, well, what does the Bible say? He's like, well, you know, we're, we need to get baptized. And I said, okay, do you think you need to get baptized? And he was like, I don't know. And so what I said, it was like, okay, well, that's something you need to pray about and let the spirit convict you. And it wasn't that long after that he came up to me, not just once, but several times saying, dad, I, I need to be baptized because hmm. I don't, I don't want him to do it. Like, yes, every scriptural passage we see, immediately they were baptized. And I really uh, think for, especially for adults, uh, I, I knew that my son understood exactly what had occurred, but I didn't want him to even hang his hat on the baptism 
immediately following his salvation, that that is now what saves him as well. So it wasn't until several months later that my wife and I uh, went through both with my son and my middle daughter um, what baptism was. And we waited for them to come to us several times in which it's like, okay, we can't suppress this anymore. And, you know, some people may disagree with us on that, but I, I just feel like I just want to be very cautious with them to make sure that even what had occurred when he had prayed that this was real because it, natural inclination of obedience is to follow the example that we have seen from Christ. And especially too, when you're involved with churches and stuff that you're seeing uh, kids come down and get baptized, kids come down and get baptized, kind of like this repetitious cycle. It's just like, oh, well, I want to get baptized because I saw those kids get baptized and I want to do that now. Uh, I don't want right. it to be because they did it. I want it to be because they feel that prompting of the Holy Spirit to do so. Yeah, exactly. You know, so getting back to the sinner's prayer here, we see that it started in the 1700s and then it kind of morphed and evolved over uh, into the 19th century. Uh, and then what we see playing out now um, is getting into kind of like the formulation of what we have now as the quote unquote sinner's prayer, which again, I mean, it, it went through Dwight Moody, uh, R.A. Torrey. Uh, and then it went to um, Billy Sunday as well, in which they began to utilize this sinner's prayer to kind of, this might sound wrong, pump out Christians, you know, to pump the numbers out, to get them going uh, and everything else. And what we see here is that it came from one of Billy Graham's, uh, I guess you could say gospel tracks of four things God wants you to know. And then it Bill Bright in 1950 through Campus Crusade for Christ, he's the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, took these four spiritual laws and turned it into a way for the Christian to be able to evangelize to their neighbor and lead them to salvation and saying the sinner's prayer. And what ends up happening with this and what he was doing with this was he was elevating the biblical principle of prosperity and peace with God above the message of repentance from sin as a primary motive for accepting Christ as the savior. Because if you, I'm going to read the, the standard sinner's prayer here. And then what you'll see absent from this is the call to repentance. Uh, so here's everyone for the most part, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it's quote, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throat of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be, end quote. And so I think with that, what is lacking in that is the repentance. You know, I, I'm not saying it's not there, but it's not implicit within that statement. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's helpful to cross our T's and dot our I's showing the connection between this. Bill Bright actually was very much connected again with uh, Keswick theology, as I as I mentioned earlier, yeah. this was one of those things that, and you can even see even in the language that he's using there, um, take control of the throne of my life. Yeah. Meaning, in other words, this is something that I can give you permission to do, and I think that 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 actually gives more fuel to your statement that repentance isn't a big part of the initial call to salvation, because with regard to leaving your sins behind and things like that, that that is typically viewed in in these circles as the next level that you get to eventually yeah. so some some further point down the road. Well, and, and too with it, too, I've also heard individuals kind of mix up the prayer to say, I'm sorry for my sins. You know, it, it, again, it's lacking the the emphasis on repentance, because in Acts 238, after Peter gives his 
the first sermon of the church, really, he says this in Acts chapter two, verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we see right there, he's calling people to repentance. That's what Christ was calling people to was repentance. It's repentance. And the only way you can repent is if you acknowledge and understand that you are a sinner in need of a savior. So if you don't know that you need a savior, what are you repenting from? If you're just feeling sorry that you do bad things, hey, lots of people feel sorry for doing bad things that never come into salvation because it's just, you just know you shouldn't do it. And that's just the law of God written on our hearts. And so it's just interesting with that, that we just have to be cautious with our language. And sadly, and Peter, I know you see this all the time too. Uh, one thing that I've really grown to be cautious with is making sure I'm being clear in my terms and I'm making distinctions. Because when you don't make distinctions and you're not being clear in your terms, uh, I'm sure, you know, when you're leading in your classes that you're teaching too, you've got to make sure you, you give them clear guidance. Otherwise, they're going to take that gray area and run with it. And uh, we, we just have to be cautious with that, you know. Mm-hmm. But so we've got the sinner's prayer. We've got the altar call. It, it's just what would you say, Peter, from, from your perspective on what should happen? Or if there, we there's church leaders that listen to this podcast as well, what should church leaders do, uh, mothers and fathers do, maybe even other teachers and stuff do if someone comes to them and says, hey, Peter, uh, I, I need to accept Christ. What what would you say would be a good advice to give them on how to kind of walk them through this process? Because I think that might be a question people are wondering, like, okay, so we don't do the sinner's prayer. So what is it that we do or what is it that we should do? And what's the biblical precedence that we should be doing? Yeah, well, I think that's, that is the, the question we should be asking, probably the most important question. And I think Scripture is very clear about what Christ demands of those who want to follow him, right? And I think uh, I think Scripture talks to us very, very clearly and theologically about who Christ is. He's the son of David. He is God in human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died for the sins of those who would believe in him. He rose again. He sits at the hand. He has he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his own. I mean, all of that is theologically ascertainable. But one of the things I really like to just tell people is that when when people told Jesus or when they asked him, like, what how, how can I follow you? What what do you what do you ask of your disciples? Uh, Jesus told them to take up their cross and follow him. Like take take. In other words, this is this is the standard which he called his disciples to. In fact, in Luke 14, 25 through 35. That's one of my favorite passages on the subject. Jesus gives a, a three points uh, or a three point outline, as it were. He says, you must hate your father and mother and brothers and sisters and uh, hate your own life. Even like, in other words, your devotion to me needs to come at the exclusive level uh, and your other relationships are viewed as hatred in comparison to your exclusive relationship to me. I am the the dominating factor in your life. And so I think it's important to just set the definition to people saying, well, listen, you want to follow Christ. This is the standard. And then in Luke 14, he goes on and says, and says, well, you need to take up your own cross, follow me. That means a willingness to die an excruciating death. So in other words, let's not paint a rosy picture here. In fact, it, it, 
it really kind of bothers me because oftentimes in these altar call scenarios, people will say, don't you want a better life? Don't you want to be yeah. the best athlete? Don't you want to be the best doctor? Don't you want? But in reality, uh, following Christ doesn't mean you're going to be the best at something. Following Christ more often than not means more problems in life. Mm. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's a good thing to recognize that and to raise the standard and say, following Jesus will bring you pain and agony and suffering. Is that what you still want to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, uh, but that's, that's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did. They raised the standard. Yeah. They didn't deceive people thinking, oh, try Jesus for a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to do when we disciple um, those who are interested in coming to Christ. We say, well, listen, if the spirit is drawing you, just know that this is the standard. Mm. And, and if, if that, if that makes you say, well, no, thanks. That's, uh, that's definitely not what I was looking for. I was just looking for a little, you know, fellowship with some fun people. But if they say, I don't care, I have to do this because yeah. I know that this is the only thing that I can do that, there, that this is, this is the only way for life. Uh, as the disciples, uh, when Jesus said, you too want to depart, they said, how can we, you alone have the words of life. Mm. And that yeah. that's what true believers do is they say, well, of course the road is hard. Matthew seven, the way is narrow, but this is the only way we can walk. We have to follow this way. So I just, I just think we follow the biblical pattern of, of just defining the things the way that Jesus did saying this, this is the standard, you know, like being willing to give up your family, being willing to give up your life, being willing to give up your possessions and follow me. You know, this is this is the standard. Are you willing to do that? And then, of course, we're, we're like, you know, uh, you know, I think in Mark, for example, you have you have the man who cries out and says, you know, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course, we, we have that. But but that that's also part of the process where where he knows that this is the right thing. But he also knows that there's weakness within him. And so we 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 can understand that and assess that. But I think that that's really key is to raise the standard the way that Jesus did and then to allow the spirit to use his his word in in the lives of individuals and and see that bear much fruit. Yeah, I mean, we, we even have examples of the rich young ruler. I mean, we've got all these other examples, too, um, in which it's it's a consistent and constant denying yourself. Um, and recognizing that the only source of life that can aid you and give you salvation is Jesus Christ. Now, uh, what's interesting though, is that I feel like, you know, using the narrow gate motif is that I feel like modern churches now have swapped that gate, you know, instead of the, the gate being narrow and few who find it, uh, it's now wide is the gate and many find it and narrow is the gate of those who don't believe. Um, right. uh, is what I, what I've seen is a sadly, uh, across the state of the church. Um, now this, this might be a, a loaded question for you. And if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to, but would you say if someone's sitting in a church, uh, and they're constantly, you know, their, their, their church is having a continual altar call and having the whole church as a whole, say the sinner's prayer out together. Would you say, and I think this always comes down to big questions people have is, you know, by what standard should I end up finding another church or leaving the church? Would you say that that's grounds for looking for another church? Well, I know it's this, a loaded question. It's yeah, just, but 
it's I always get in trouble because I never <laughs> I just answer whatever questions people give. So love it. It's fine. Um, the so so there are other related issues. So the the biggest thing I would say is that if that's the best church in the area and and you don't have other options, well, I still say you got you have to do something. Uh, you can't be a solo Christian. There are no Lone Ranger Christians, as we say. And so you have to have some assembly. Now, maybe you could be a part of a church plant or something like that, maybe. But a lot of people don't have the time or ability to plant a church. And so maybe in that case, they they do have to tough it out. But it's it's probable in many scenarios in North America that if you found yourself in a situation where that was happening week by week, that there are probably better churches around you. And I do think as Christians, we want to be, as genuine believers who are interested in being obedient to Christ, I think the simple standard is you want to be in the best church you can be, not just not just for your own sake, but for the sake of your family. But but yeah, you're, you're, you're trying to grow and mature and be sharpened and you can't rise above uh, the teacher. In fact, Luke 640 says those who when they are fully trained will be like their teacher. And so I think that that is a indictment on on weak teaching, if uh, weak uh, discipleship. And so you, for your own sake, want to be in the strongest environment possible. And so I can't say for sure everyone should leave a scenario like that, but it would be strong enough reason for me to look for better churches, because if that's what's going on every Sunday, that is also betraying a different ecclesiology and uh purpose of the church than than what i uh, espouse or hold to yeah and even hosea talks about like like prophet like people or like priest like people mm -hmm. you're never going to rise higher than that and you know one thing i've seen too is this over you know in what it's interesting what we're really talking about under the umbrella of everything we're talking about is i would guess you would even just say the philosophical approach and view of evangelism. Um, what is the view of evangelism? Because uh, one thing that I've seen, especially coming out of Jesus movement, stuff like that is if the Jesus movement produced all of these quote unquote converts, where are they? Um, why is the state of the church declining? It's because there's such an overemphasis on evangelism and a complete lack of emphasis on discipleship. And it's that mis, in my opinion, misappropriation and understanding of Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is it's go out and make disciples. And so what they assume that is, is go out and convert people to be followers of Christ. When it's what I believe is that a, a focus of discipleship overflows in healthy evangelism. If right. the church knows what they believe and why they believe it, they'll want to share that with those in their spheres of influence at work, school, play, wherever so if we focus on building solid, committed believers who know what they believe, why they believe it, are involved heavily in discipleship, the overflow of the church, the, the engine of the church should be a focus on doctrine, teaching, and discipleship, and the overflow is evangelism. And it's going to overflow into that where we don't need to have these one-week, one-weekend rallies, and we don't need these one-man evangelist shows traveling around, you know, evangelizing. Uh, you know, I think in my opinion, I think that era is over. Um, I, I think that whole hype of, you know, a one man show kind of a deal 
where this guy comes and just draws thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And then you got thousands of people giving their lives to Christ. What's the follow on? You, okay. You got this guy who's not tied into the local church. He's from California, Oregon, wherever he comes to your local area, evangelizes the lost, the lost quote unquote gets saved. Is there follow-up in connection with a local church? Cause if there isn't, then I don't know where that discipleship is occurring. You know what I mean? Yeah, I actually read somewhere and I can't remember where, but it was in some academic source that that cited it was less than 10% of people who went forward or got saved at those at those rallies or whatever ended up getting plugged into a local church. And so obviously that's a way different picture than the New Testament. In the New Testament, you see 3000 souls get saved, but the language that's used is 3000 souls are added to the church, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's actually funny. Um, I, that statistic, it may have been from the same source that I read it from, um, Sterling Houston, uh, did a, an approach of the Billy Graham crusades and specifically within the Pacific Northwest, he indicated that only 16% of those who came forward in the Pacific Northwest actually became new additions to the church. Wow. Um, which just attests to that. Cause I, I was telling my wife, I was like, man, for a dissertation, it'd be really uh, I think powerful, but also really offensive for some people to do a statistic anal- analysis of true converts versus the numbers touted from both those crusades and then also from that Jesus movement as well. Uh, I, I was like, man, I hope someone one day takes that on, but uh, I don't have the time <laughs> or the resources to do that. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think with all of this, then, Peter, and I think I think we've kind of answered the question. Is the altar call and sinner's prayer rooted in scripture? Is it biblically supported? Well, I obviously don't think so. And, but I think we go back to where we started, right? And I think um, it's not inherently sinful. Uh, and I would, I would be more open to the altar call than the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer, I think, is, uh, is much more dangerous inherently, especially mm-hmm. if, if you're telling somebody, if you've prayed this, now you're locked in. Um, but the altar call in general couldn't, could be useful hypothetically in certain Mm. scenarios. Uh, but I think, you know, like we didn't talk about this, but there are whole, uh, churches and environments where people have, people are plants in the congregation. And during the Mm. altar call, they get up and come forward to just kind of motivate others to come. And that's the thing is as Christians, we worship in, in spirit and in truth. But we need to be careful because the emotional element is often just overemphasized yeah. in in life in general, but especially in religious circles. And I would say that's the that's the biggest danger is that Christianity inherently is a matter of reason and faith. Mm. And I think that 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 is something <clears throat> we, we lose if we if we're propping up altar calls and sinners prayer. I think that, that it is much more dangerous and I, I would strongly discourage it. Yeah. And, and I think what both you and I would agree with is that faith seeks understanding. Exactly. Faith is not a blind faith. Faith seeks understanding of what did I just do? Why did I just do this? And what are the implications of this in my life? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, this is something that I'm I'm pretty passionate about um, being back down in the South. I've been removed from the South for quite some time being in the Northwest, West Coast, Northeast, then being back down here now in the South, it, it's just prevalent. Uh, it, it's just everywhere. 
Um, and again, I'm not trying to scare people out of their church. That's not at all our intention here. Our intention is to just, I believe that every practice of the church, and I think it's not just my belief, it's true. Everything that is done inside and outside of the church in the name of the church corporately, whether it's done individually or not, we have to have a biblical precedence for why we're doing what we're doing. It's has, it has to be rooted and founded and grounded in scripture. Otherwise it becomes mere opinion and it leads us to a state of relativism where there's no right or wrong. It's just kind of shooter's choice, you know? Right. But well, Peter, man, I, I, I think me and you could just go off on several different topics within this, but in respect of your time, I'm sure you got papers and stuff that you need to grade. Um, I want to say thank you so much for joining uh, me on the podcast. And also I wanted if people want to listen to your podcast or anything else, would you mind pitching your stuff real quick? So that way they can find it. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. You you could find it in two different ways. You could go to petergaiman.com or Bible sojourner.com. They go to the same place. So either my name, petergaiman.com or Bible sojourner.com. I have a little blog and then I also do uh, a biweekly podcast that would love people to check out. And um, I, I am happy to, hear that you have enjoyed a episode on occasion. So I'm, I'm just thankful for uh, the opportunity to be involved in that. Yeah. I actually, you, you had Mark Ward on your podcast recently and uh, I was writing Mark several months ago uh, about how much his book um, authorized has really helped me uh, in dealing with a lot of the KJV only down here uh, as well. So uh, I, I love that episode. Mark is just an incredible guy. Um, and just so down to earth and knowledgeable. And, uh, I hope to have him one day on the podcast as well, but yeah, guys, if, if you're looking for more stuff, um, man, how many episodes you got, you've got well over a hundred now, right? Yeah. I think we just did 125 this last yeah. week. So, cause I heard your one where you're like, Hey, we just surpassed uh just thinking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, uh, and so I thought that was really cool. Um, that you've got a lot of episodes and guys, I mean, you can spend, I mean, it's world-class top level, uh, issues that Peter's going with. And I've really been enjoying, uh, he's been really going after pedo baptism. And, um, now question for you, this is just a personal question. Have you, have you thought about engaging in pedo communion practice? You know I have thought about that actually. So, so my big project right now in between all the other things I'm managing is I'm actually writing a book on, um, pedo baptism. And Ooh. so, so that's, you can look Lord willing, it, it should be ready, ready to go, um, early 2023. So that's, that's my goal, Lord willing. Um, I'm through most of it and I'm just editing and working, working through it. So that's been taking up all my time, but I have, um, I have, uh, thought about doing pedo communion as well. I actually do talk a little bit about it in the book, but I'm, uh, yeah, I, I need to turn some of that into some podcast episodes. I think now who's publishing your book. Uh, it's, it's under wraps right now. We'll okay. Say that gotcha. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, man, once we get that, I, I definitely want to push that out to our people. Cause I know that that would be an incredible resource and I'm, I'm definitely going to buy it. Uh, I'm excited for that. Cause you've, uh, I love your take on how you're expositing and clarifying the language of covenantal theology and pedal baptism and the implications and all the outliers too, that kind of surround that. So it's incredible. And if you guys are listening and you want more information, 
highly suggest you check out his podcast with that. But um, Peter, uh, thank you so much for joining uh, me today. It was truly, it was truly an honor uh, to have you on here. And then uh, one last question. This is really going to be scratching your head. How poor were my papers that I wrote when I submitted them to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they were the best papers I'd ever. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I can't remember. How about that? Perfect. <laughs> it's All right, it's funny. To be fair, though, I can't even remember my own papers. So yeah. it's it's a wash. You know, my, like I said, my memory is terrible, but. All I remember is being very pleased with your your discipline and your work ethic. So I, uh, I it's been a blast to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, I look back on my stuff I wrote in my MDiv. I'm like, oof, man, I, I've come a long way. Praise God uh, in my writing because that was rough. That's Amen. rough working. And so Peter's a saint for uh, getting me through that class. <laughs> but uh, well, hey, Peter, thanks for joining us, and everyone, thank you for joining us on the Battlefield Theologian Podcast. I hope this gives you. Uh, some items to consider in the traditional practices that you may or may not be familiar with or that you may or may not see within your church. Guys, just remember, we must always weigh what is being said and taught and compare it with Scripture. Remember, we are to be good Bereans in accordance with Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Uh, I hope this podcast encourages you uh, and join us next time on more topics and issues here on the Battlefield Theologian podcast. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Here we go. On the road. On the road. On the road. On the road.